Genesis chapter 12. Our text for today is to be found in verses 10 through 20. We've stepped into the second leg of our journey through the book of Genesis. Last week, we met Abram, who would later be called Abraham. Abram is one of the greatest icons and heroes in Scripture. He is the patriarch of Israel. He is the one, as we saw last week, who was singled out by God among all the people in the world. Singled out by God Almighty Himself, who was called to leave his pagan city and his pagan life to follow Yahweh by faith. He is the one to whom God gave the promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. That is, through his line of descendants would come the promised Savior, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in that Savior, all the nations of the world can find deliverance from their sins and can find peace with God. And this begins all the way back with this man, Abram. And so Abram is, for good reason, a significant figure in Scripture. For in Abram, God's plan of salvation accelerates forward. The plan has been there all along, but now we are taking a step forward, if you will, as God speaks to Abram. And in the same manner, Abram is, for good reason, a hero to God's people. And he is worthy of honor for his demonstration of faith and for his role in the salvation plan of God. In fact, Hebrews 11 spends more time praising Abram for his faith than anyone else. And in looking at the life of Abram, we are looking at one of Scripture's greatest characters, and we are seeing God's promise of salvation take on more detail and move closer to its fulfillment. And we are learning important lessons about the character of God and the nature of true saving faith, all by looking at the life of Abram. But Abram was just a man. He was just a man. And while it is a good thing for us to have spiritual heroes, and we ought to have spiritual heroes, to hold godly men and faithful men in high esteem and to follow their examples, we must always remember that the greatest of earthly heroes are just mere men and women. Abram was a sinner too. And it strikes me that the greatest human heroes all throughout Scripture, whether it be Noah or Abraham or Jacob or Moses or David or Peter or Paul or anyone else, they are all notably flawed. Have you ever noticed that? Every last one of them isn't just a little bit flawed. They're majorly flawed. Scripture doesn't hide the reality of their sinfulness because we're not meant to see these men 
as God himself. They are not the Savior. They are not to be exalted to the place of God. They are sinful people just like the rest of us, and they are indeed in great need of the same Savior we are. And their examples are only good insofar as they point us to the ultimate hero, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. What's more, it's good for us to consider the lives of these human heroes, especially their failures. We don't like to look at the failures of our heroes, do we? We like to whitewash that, but it's actually good for us to consider their failures. Because in those failures, we find important instruction for our own lives in how to avoid the same pitfalls. We actually can grow stronger by the examples of these heroes. In their failures, we learn critical lessons for godly character and Christ-like living. And even more importantly, in their lives, we can learn the character of God and see the faithfulness, see His willingness to forgive. We can see His patient care and protection, even in the midst of their foolish behavior. In our text for today, we see God's character and we see God's salvation plan threatened again. It happens over and over again throughout the story of Scripture. And here it happens, this time, by the failure of faith on the part of Abram himself, the great hero. Abram will come away from this passage looking pretty foolish. But God's faithfulness is greater than any man's failures. And God will preserve His promise And he will protect and restore his faltering people. And he will carry on his sovereign plan of salvation through any obstacle. Therefore, in all these things, we must look to God alone by faith. And we must follow him. And we must trust him to provide and to protect, even when things don't seem to be going well. And when we sin, we can... And we must look to him again for forgiveness and for restoration because he is our faithful God and he will complete in his people what he has begun. Let's look at our text for this morning, Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Please follow along as I read. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a a woman beautiful in appearance. A good comment for a husband to make to his wife. Verse 12, not so much. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. 
and for her sake he dwelt he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. From faith to failure, some have said of Genesis 12. Or from worship to weakness. That describes the surprising shift in Abram's life that is recorded in this chapter. The striking contrast between the Abram we meet in verses 1 through 9 and the Abram we read about in verses 10 through 20. But while Abram is the main character of this narrative, he is not ultimately the main focal point. In this passage, we are able to look at the factors that contributed to Abram's failure, and we are able to learn important lessons for our own lives as we strive to avoid our own spiritual failures. There is very helpful instruction and necessary instruction here for us. But at the heart of it all, this is a passage about God. This is a passage about the sovereignty and faithfulness of God despite the threats of evil and the failures of his people. You know as well as I do that we are all flawed people, and we fail. We need a God who is stronger than that, don't we? And we find one right here. And so while we learn important lessons about the failure of man, all of that serves as a backdrop to highlight the faithfulness of Yahweh. And that is, it is that sovereignty and that faithfulness that gives us hope and assurance that our failures and our troubles are not the end of the story if we belong to God. And so I want us to begin this morning by considering, first of all, the failure of man. The failure of man. Let's look at that failure. And let's learn what we can about what caused it. Verses 10 through 16. When we left off in verses 1 through 9, we saw a magnificent display of faith on the part of Abram, didn't we? Yahweh calls him, this pagan idolater, to leave everything he has known. To leave his land to leave his home, and even to leave much of his family, and to travel to a place God didn't even reveal to him yet. I'm telling you, Abram, leave it, get up, and go. I'll tell you where you're going when you get there. And the God makes a monumental promise to him that Abram would become a great nation, that all of the land of Canaan would belong to his descendants, that Yahweh himself would be their protector and the guarantee of these promises to them, and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abram and his descendants. This is a big promise. This is out of this world. 
And Abram, seemingly without hesitation, got up and went. And then as he enters into the land of Canaan, wherever he travels, he sets up an altar to Yahweh and he worships him there without reservation. But now we see Abram's faith falter. Now he stumbles. And he makes some foolish decisions. Why? What caused this lapse in faith for Abram? Well, it wasn't the severity of his circumstances. It wasn't some failure on God's part. Oops, I didn't see that coming. Sorry, Abram. That's not how this works. In terms of broad categories, we can see Abram's failure in three ways or in three categories. First of all, there was a failure in the matter of faith itself. What he was believing it really does seem to be a matter of Abram and his faith missing the trees for the forest, right? He believed God when it came to the big stuff. But then when it came to the everyday need, he felt he had to take matters into his own hands. We read in verse 10, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. There is some repetition there. That's important in Old Testament literature. This was a big deal. This famine was not just a few days of dry weather. This was a severe famine. It was weighing heavy on the people of the land. So the trouble is real. Scripture never denies that the trouble God's people face is real trouble and significant trouble. But that is not the issue here. That is not, that is not the reason Abram made foolish choices, though it is the circumstance. And for Abram, going into the land of Egypt may seem to be the reasonable thing to do. And no doubt it was the common thing to do. Who among us wouldn't have thought about the same thing? And likely, who among us would not have done it? When severe famine occurs, one must consider where he can go and what he can do to provide for his family and those under his care, right? Ordinarily, the fact that Abram went down to Egypt to get relief from the famine is not something I would consider a lapse of faith. And interestingly enough, Scripture doesn't condemn him for that move in and of itself. But there is more going on here. This detail, when considered along with the other things that happen in this passage, at least gives a hint that Abraham is not making his decision purely by faith. But he is thinking purely about practicality. Isn't that often the way it works? It's not that we're denying God. It's not that we're completely abandoning all belief in God, but it's the little things that trip us up. It's the devotion to practicality. It's the, it's the worldly judgment issues, right? The littler things. Scripture doesn't rebuke Abram for making this move in and of itself, but Scripture is uncomfortably silent. 
in a text that goes out of its way to praise Abram when he makes a move of faith. Silence is troubling. And in the context of what we read next, I think we're meant to feel that something's not quite right here. He's leaving the promised land. Yahweh, I have trusted you with my future, but now I need to take care of my food. And he leaves. And then we read in verses 11 and 12, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. I'll say more about the foolishness of Abram's plan in a few minutes. But here I want us simply to see another example of his lapse in faith. He had already believed God, and he had entrusted his life to him in matters concerning his future, so much so that he was willing to leave his land and his idols to follow God to who knows where, into Canaan. That was the big stuff. But then when it came to the protection of his wife and to the preservation of his own life, he takes matters into his own hands. No doubt Abram is justified in his concern. There's no telling what they're going to do to you when they see you, right? In fact, what he feared ha would happen actually came to, came to pass. And it almost seems as if Abram's plan works. Kind of. Certainly, he knew that if God was going to fulfill his promise to Abram, then Abram has to be alive before he has descendants, right? So Abram can't go into Egypt and die, because what is that going to do to God's sovereign plan? But as it turns out, Abram actually makes matters worse, doesn't he? He puts his own wife into a serious physical and moral danger. And he brings reproach upon the name of Yahweh in the eyes of Pharaoh. And all that because though Abram believed God concerning the big stuff, he stumbled in his faith when it came to Yahweh's daily provision and protection and preservation. So at the heart of it all, Abram's failure was a failure in the matter of faith. Specifically, in trusting God for the everyday matters of life, the things that spring up unexpectedly before God tells us about them. Is this not where we often go wrong in our own lives? Have you ever thought about it that way? We trust God as the Savior of the world, as the Creator of all things. He is the Savior of our souls from hell. He is the Creator and the Governor of the planets. He rules the solar system and He directs the weather, yes. But it's harder, is it not, to trust God with the comparatively smaller things, the daily struggles of life. Lord, what about my power bill? What about my car? What about my wayward child? What about 
my health? What about my 401k? And so we take matters into our own hands and we try to manipulate our circumstances. I'm not talking about walking in wisdom. We certainly need to do that. But making the practical decision only on the basis of practicality, only on the basis of worldly wisdom, and sometimes even coming to the point where we're willing to justify compromising our faith or putting it on hold or compromising our morals and our ethics, ethics just this once, just in this extreme circumstance. And when we do, we give evidence that we are not really believing in God. We are not really trusting Him as the good and sovereign Lord over every moment and every circumstance of our lives. Have we not all been guilty of that at some point? Jesus knows that. Turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus knows that. He knows that's a weakness in all of us. And in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, he addresses it with some very pointed yet comforting words. Matthew 6, 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Is he saying we're never to make plans for the future and we're never to use our money wisely and we're never to strive and work hard to provide for our family and for our basic needs? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying do not do that as if that is the end in itself. Your first priority is to seek the kingdom of God, to hear his word and to follow him. Jesus understands that. And he wants us to understand, as Abram needed to understand, that if God is sovereign and if God is trustworthy in the big stuff, is he not also sovereign and trustworthy in the little stuff and in all the stuff in between? Have you not seen him work in the past? Have you not experienced his provision? and His protection, even in seemingly insignificant ways, at just the right moment when you needed it. Have you not seen that? Can you not, in whatever troubles you face this morning, cast every care on Him because He cares for you? 
Abram's problem here is a failure in the matter of faith. But that brings us then to consider also not just a failure in the matter of faith, but also a failure in the matter of prayer. Now this is an implied observation, I know that, but I think it's an accurate one. I don't know what prayer would have looked like for Abram in the time in which he lived. Abram didn't have a godly mentor to teach him how to pray. Abram didn't even have a Bible. There was no Lord's Prayer at this point. I don't know what prayer would have looked like for him, but I do know that in verses 1 through 9, he called upon the name of Yahweh, and he worshipped. And the Lord spoke to him and guided him. And I don't see that in these verses. The text makes pretty clear that Abram is acting independently in these matters. And again, is this not closely related to our own experience? A failure in faith often leads to a failure in prayer. And understand this, a failure in prayer often leads to a failure in faith. The two go hand in hand. And I'm speaking here of both crisis prayer and constant prayer. Those prayers for intervention in times of trouble and those prayers of regular fellowship and communion with the Lord in times of peace. It is this failure in prayer that left Joshua and the Israelites open to the deception of the Gibeonites in Joshua 9. And that too, right after a mountaintop experience of faith and a confession of faith on the part of Israel. Just like here with Abram, this profound display of faith followed by an incredible failure. It seems then that it is at those points of greatest spiritual victory and joy that we must also beware because temptation lurks and is soon to follow. And our lapses of faith and our prayer and our lapses in prayer most often find us not on the spiritual mountaintop, but in the valley of mundane everyday challenges. That is why Jesus instructs his disciples in Matthew 26, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that is why the apostle Paul urges us to pray without ceasing. And that is why in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want to make a third observation about the failure of man. It was a failure in the matter of faith a failure in the matter of prayer, and now sort of as a result, it was a failure in the matter of wisdom. Let's look again at verses 11 through 13 and see what brilliant plan Abram came up with in order to protect himself in Egypt. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. 
This plan is about as foolish in that context as it sounds to us today. As he enters Egypt, he assumes that the men of Egypt are going to be physically attracted to Sarai and someone will want to take her as his wife. He assumes then that they will have no hesitation to kill him in order to make it happen. What a mess we make when we live life by assumptions. And so, he says, if she would say that he is his sister, that she is his sister, then Abram, as the assumed brother, would have to give his permission to, and work up some sort of agreement. Now, she was his half-sister, so there's an element of truth here. But make no mistake, a lie is a lie, Okay? White lies are lies too, and the intent was to deceive. And look at the foolishness of this. He assumes they're going to be attracted to her, which they were. He assumes they're going to want to take her as their as wife. But he assumes that if they're in a brother-sister relationship, that things will go better. And the assumption is, and a lot of commentators argue that as his brother, he would have had to give consent which means they would have had to work out some sort of family arrangement and would have given them time then once the request was made to, to get out of town and flee to safety. But again, that's assuming that these people he has already assumed are barbarians are going to play by the rules. You see the foolishness of this? You see the convoluted thinking here? He's not thinking clearly. Now I'll give Abram credit for creativity. But that's it. In terms of trusting God, nothing. In terms of caring for his wife, nothing. I would have hated to be Abram on the road back to Canaan after this. <laughs> In terms of doing right, nothing. He may not have known exactly how God would have carried him through this famine and through these circumstances, but he had to have known God wouldn't have done that. And what was the result of Abram's profound foolishness? Look at verses 14 through 16. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Well, that's just what he expected. Verse 15. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Uh-oh, he didn't see that one coming. He didn't think he was going to have to be dealing with Pharaoh himself. Oh, the plan changes at that point. It's not as easy when it's Pharaoh who says, I want her. And yet, verse 16, for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. It appears that Abram's plan has worked. But at what cost? Pharaoh didn't kill Abram because he thought they were brother and sister, but what a horrendous thing to do to his wife. He put her in a very dangerous and compromising position, physically and morally. So here's Sarai in the harem of Pharaoh. Now, by God's grace, I believe the Lord preserved her and protected her from the danger that Abram had put her in and from that carelessness. But still, here she is. 
And here's Abram getting rich off of Pharaoh. Sheep, oxen, donkeys, servants, camels. But he is separated now from his wife. And he has morally compromised himself and her. Listen, sin makes us stupid. Kids, I don't know if you're allowed to say that word in your home. If your parents say you can't say it, then don't say it. But we need to understand this. And God uses strong language when it comes to describing sin. Sin makes us stupid. Prayerlessness makes us stupid. Failure to trust God and take Him at His word makes us stupid. And look at all the wisdom that the world is trying to, to pawn off on you to make sense of this world. Is it not utter stupidity? And Abram's actions in this passage make that abundantly clear. And while we may not be in the same situations that Abram was in, is this not a picture, again, of how often we behave? When we take the matters of our lives into our own hands, and when we make decisions apart from seeking God's word and apart from godly counsel, do we not act foolishly? Do we not often make matters worse? Now, sometimes we do our best to seek the counsel of the Lord and things still don't work out well. I'm not saying that if you have some sort of crisis or problem that you are having to wrestle through this morning, that it is purely because you've been stupid. But is this not often how we create problems in our lives, when we act independently of what God has revealed to us? What we must learn from the failure of Abram is that God is sovereign and he is trustworthy in the big stuff and in the little stuff and in all the stuff in between. And if that is the case, then we must learn to cast our cares on him alone and to take him at his word, to remember his promises to us and to seek his wisdom by looking into his word and following its instruction. Our failures in life are most often failures of faith and prayer and wisdom, are they not? But God has supplied all of that to his people. And he has supplied it all in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his Holy Spirit. And we are called to walk in him. So by God's grace, we are able to avoid the failure of man. And that sets us up now to see what we most need to see from this passage, and that is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is greater than the failure of man. And so while you might be kicking yourself or you might be suffering amidst a circumstance of your own making this morning because you have made decisions apart from the wisdom of God, you do not need to despair this morning. Because God's, God's faithfulness is greater than your failures. And there is restoration to be found in him. Look at verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? 
Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. I love those first three words, but the Lord. But Yahweh. In the midst of this mess that Abram has made, God steps in to set it right. What a glorious and merciful God he is, right? And he does this in three ways. First of all, we see it in we see the faithfulness of God in protecting Abram. We read in verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And here seems to be a fulfillment of the promise that God made back in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Yahweh makes it clear to mess with his people is to mess with him, and you don't mess with him. He makes that clear to Pharaoh. He makes that clear to the nations throughout Scripture. And he makes that clear to us. God will vindicate his people even when his people have acted foolishly. And this time, the recipient of his protection most directly is Sarai. I do think he preserved her in this. And ultimately, God is protecting Abram. And ultimately, God is protecting Abram's descendants because of the promise that he has already made to him. So God sends these plagues on Pharaoh and on his household until he lets Sarai go. And in spite of Abram's foolishness and failure, we see God graciously protect and preserve his people. We see that he will vindicate his people. But not only do we see the faithfulness of God in protecting Abram and Sarai, we also see the faithfulness in God, of God in rebuking Abram. God will vindicate his people, but he will also discipline them. In this case, the rebuke is not directly from the voice of God. It comes from the mouth of Pharaoh, which sort of feels like it's even worse. To come from the pagan king. Verses 18 and 19, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you lie? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. How Pharaoh knew Abram and Sarai were the cause of these plagues, I'm not exactly sure, except I suspect Sarai didn't receive the plagues. She's probably the one person in the household who didn't receive them, and that raised some questions, which led to a discovery that they had been deceptive. Whatever the case once Pharaoh learns the truth, he is the one who takes the moral high ground here. And it is a serious humiliation to Abram. You see that, Abram? Even the pagan king is repulsed by your foolishness. And through the mouth of Pharaoh, God brings a strong and humbling rebuke on Abram. But as we'll see, this isn't in ultimate condemnation of Abram. This is for the purpose of restoration. This is a gracious act of God's faithfulness. Even as we read all the way back in Revelation chapter 3, those whom I love, Christ says, I reprove and discipline. 
So be zealous and repent. And that brings us to not just the, the protecting and the rebuking, but God's faithfulness demonstrated in restoring Abram. Restoring Abram to his wife, to the promised land, and ultimately to the plan of God. Pick up then at the end of verse 19. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Pharaoh gives everything and everyone back to Abram and sends him away. And now Abram is humiliated, and Pharaoh's view of Yahweh must be harmed in all of this. But that's God's deal. That's, that's God's burden now. What is important now is that God is graciously, lovingly, and sovereignly leading Abram back to the land. Look at the beginning of chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. That's where we left him off in verse 9. He goes back into the land. Verse 2 of chapter 13. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. Remember what he did between Bethel and Ai? He built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. Verse 4. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord again. He returns to the place where God had led him in the first place. He returns to the place where he had worshipped the Lord. And he calls upon the name of the Lord there once again. And this is a staggering picture of the mercy and grace and love and patience and tender care of our God toward all of his people. Though our faith falters and our spirits fall, though we doubt and sin and make all manner of foolish choices, our God is faithful and He is greater than our failures and He protects us and He rebukes us and He restores us. His chastening is not for our harm, but for our good, that we would be trained as children to flee foolishness and to flee sin and to take him at his word and to simply trust him. Turn over to Psalm 103. Because the psalmist in Psalm 103 really gets to the heart of this picture of who God is. Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. See those capital letters there in Lord? Yahweh, the God who sent the plagues on Pharaoh, the God who led Abram back to the promised land, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Verse 17. But the steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Friends, this is our God. This is Yahweh. This is the God who made heaven and earth, who rules over all, who makes gracious covenant with his people and will keep it. This is the God who tenderly cares for his own. And you have access to him today. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that one, who is that ultimate descendant of Abram through whom all the earth will be blessed. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who kept the law perfectly in our place, who died a sinner's death in our place and rose again so that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved, will be brought to fellowship with Yahweh. Flee to him today. Flee to him for salvation from your sins. Christians, if your faith has faltered, do not despair, but flee to Christ for restoration. And today, may we rest in the steadfast love of a gloriously faithful God. Let's pray. Lord, we need this.